Hi everyone, welcome to Queer Sounds, a podcast on queer folks' favorite tunes. My name is Hannah, pronouns they, them, and let me paint a picture for you here. It's been a very busy day today, folks. Um, I've biked through the rain, through the wind, I'm doing everything for you a lot to make this happen. So thank you so much again for tuning in. But enough about me. Nick, welcome to the show. Introduce yourself a little bit. How are you? I'm great. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so happy to be on this podcast episode with you. So um, everyone, name is Nick, pronouns he, his, him. And I am one of the co-hosts and co-founders of the Queer Q podcast, which is a podcast about different types of queer films. We critically analyze and have a lively discussion about those films. So if that is your interest, definitely check us out. Um, but yeah, happy to be here. Thank you for having me. Happy to have you. Um, all right. So like you mentioned, you, uh, do a bunch of queer, uh, queer movie stuff. You actually are a film major, right? I am. I got my master's in cinema studies from New York university. Um, okay. So here's the thing I'm kind of wondering because, um, uh, fun fact, that's actually, that's the type of nerd we are. Uh, I was like, okay, so what am I going to do with my Friday, with my, with my free Tuesday evening? Uh, and then I noticed, um, there was a film major lecture going on. We could, you could just freely enroll and like, all right, everything's over zoom anyway. So another person or two in the zoom call, it's not going to make a difference. So everyone who wants to join can join. And I, so I actually, attended a film major uh, lecture, which actually was a lot of fun. But that got me wondering, how often do film majors re-watch specific movies? Oh, well, um, we're definitely super nerds about it. So Exactly. Yeah. You know, I'm... Yeah, <laughs> no, that's the truth. Um, so, you know, I, specifically me, I, I can't speak for a lot of other film majors, but specifically for me, I watch multiple films every day you know even if it's not just for you know my studies if i'm preparing for a podcast episode or if i'm writing some type of piece it's like you know i just have such a passion for movies and i i'm sure obviously anyone who is a film major has a passion for movies yeah. obviously but um yeah you know it's just i will watch movies just leisurely you know every day that's just a part of my identity and what I do. What's the last movie you watched? Ooh, okay. So this is one of my all-time favorite movies. And I watched it last night just before going to bed. And it's the third Quentin Tarantino movie, Jackie Brown. I don't know if... Have you seen Jackie Brown? Does not ring a bell, no. Ooh, well, definitely check it out. It's my favorite Tarantino movie. You know, I have... Mixed feelings about Quentin Tarantino, but I love that movie for very specific reasons, and it's definitely one of his more underrated movies. A lot of people don't really recognize it as, you know, a huge Quentin Tarantino movie, and I think that's one of the reasons why I really enjoy it. All right. Um, we, without a doubt, we'll get in... Uh, into all of the stuff when it comes to like movie theory and like whatever we're going to talk about. Um, mm -hmm. I kind of feel like I should be embarrassed by the last movie I watched, but Ooh. I'm not really. What is it? 
Last Christmas, that George Michael Christmas movie with Amelia Clark. Okay, so, you know, I'm a huge Amelia Clark fan, you know, Game of Thrones, and um, I believe it was Me Before You with, like, Sam Claflin. I really loved her in that, and I'm a huge fan of Henry Golding. I just fawn over him, and he's recently... Um, had this movie released where he plays a gay man and I, I just loved his performance in that movie which is called Monsoon just recently came out and um, you know I really I feel like you're deliberately drawing the attention away from the Lost Christmas movie oh no no I'm just like <laughs> like so I enjoyed them together and I think you know pointing out how much I really enjoy these actors and their works is, you know, kind of what drew me to that movie. And I thought that they had a really good chemistry and it's a great cast. You know, it has Michelle Yao in it and, um, Emma Thompson, right? Is she, I believe she's in it. Yes. 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 She, she is the mother, right? Yeah, she is. Um, it's definitely not one of my favorite holiday movies, but you know, um, I think it's just because the, the twist was pretty contrived for me and um, it was a little sappy, but I really enjoyed their chemistry and I thought that they, the scenes that they shared together really made up for it in my opinion. So nothing against that movie and nothing wrong for watching it. You know, I definitely want to know why you feel that way about the film, why you're a little embarrassed about it. Yeah, well, it's like like you said, it's it's a bit sappy, it's it's cheesy, and it's like it's, it's. But in that sense, I feel like it's doing okay what it's set out to do, like being mm-hmm. a kind of. I feel like it's by design a generic feel good holiday movie, which I feel like okay, if that's what this movie's supposed to do, it's doing its job right. Yeah, no, that that's true. Um, yeah. Uh, but with that, you know, I didn't watch it because I knew any of the actors per se. Um, uh, but I, I, I just love George Michael, and I was like, okay, I've, I've got access to a uh, a prime a prime video account, so I was like, okay, the movie's on here. As a George Michael fan, I feel like I must have seen this movie. Um, but that's uh, that's kind of disappointing in that sense. I like the obvious plot points. Um, were there, but in any with, with any other musical references, I feel like the role George played in there was kind of minimal, and feel like he was very replaceable in that, which I felt was too bad. But you can't have everything, right? Yeah, I know because when you mentioned George Michael, you know, it's like I I definitely know George Michael, and he's huge, you know, queer icon in music, and I yeah, I never really picked up on that in the film because I agree, I felt like that really paid him played a minimal role so you know that would be really disappointing if that's what you're looking for going in but I'm glad that you still you know enjoyed like the usual holiday uh, trappings of the film you know it does have those classic beats to a holiday film exactly and it's like all right it's a Sunday it's um, it's it's noon what am I going to do with my hangover afternoon (laughs) it's just watching a Christmas movie sounded like the right thing to do but hey, um, without further ado, speaking of Christmas stuff, let's actually get music going on. Yeah. Um, 
The first one is probably the oldest song I've ever had on this podcast. It's Blue Christmas, Elvis Presley. Elvis Presley in 1957. However, the song itself is in fact nine years older than that. Um, the version uh, it was originally written for was by Doy O'Dell, um, released 1948. Um, and from there, there actually became like a very popular iconic song, and especially. Um, when it comes to like country Christmas songs. Um, so from Doyodell in 48, there were three other versions released before we got to this one. Um, so the first one being Doyodell, the second one being uh, by, um, I want to say the Browns in 1960, and uh, the Beach Boys released their version of this song the exact day as Presley. So, yeah, um, an old one, uh, not the oldest when it comes to the recording, uh, when, when it comes to the original release, but um, for now, definitely the oldest song I've ever had on this <laughs> podcast, Blue Christmas by Elvis. So, um, Nick, take it away. Why did you, why did you decide to go for this song? So, um, I'm very, I was very curious about, you know, all of those different versions and why Elvis's was, you know, the one that endured as, you know, the official version of Blue Christmas when, you know, playing it on the airwaves and everything. But, you know, when I, when I hear Blue Christmas, it always makes me a little sad and it, for me, it's something where I really romanticize some of the more sadder aspects of the holidays. And whenever I hear that song, you know, I think back to, you know, just some of those, you know, sad moments in, you know, films or television that play the song, you know, when we're really supposed to really feel for the characters. I really feel the song, and, you know, just really feeling something that was different than what is normally felt during the holidays because 
you know, as a child and growing up, you know, we look forward to the holidays every year. We look forward to Christmas, um, to Kwanzaa, to Hanukkah, and, you know, just celebrating the holiday season for the, for, you know, winter and, you know, all that, all, all that fun stuff. But, you know, for once, I really felt like that there was a different, you know, feeling about the holidays, that there is a bit of a sad element to it. Um, the um, awareness of Christmas is also being able to be sad. Like, was that something you had to experience yourself first? Yeah, you know, there were definitely years that were a little bit different. You know, like, um, our family's financial situation would fluctuate, you know, from year to year. And so some Christmases were a little bit more sparse. Some were definitely bountiful. You know, when I was growing up at first, it, you know, it was like presents everywhere. And then, um, you know, as I got a little bit older, you know, it didn't turn out to be that way. And, you know, that sounds super materialistic and super superficial, but, you know, that's um, usually what you expect as a child, not really understanding. And, um, you know, also there's years of loss and, you know, we think about the holidays without certain people in our lives. And, you know, that's something that every person growing up has to come to terms with. And so, you know, there, I know that there was one year where one of my, someone in my family had recently passed and, you know, that song was something that had played at a certain point. And, you know, just the bluesy elements to it, you know, it really helped me identify, you know, the sadness that I was experiencing during the holidays and being able to really vocalize that and understand it. And so, you know, this song really helped me come to terms with my own grief and, you know, just really understanding that the holidays, that there can be a lot of you know, sadness and depression dealing with it. And that, you know, when we focus on the good, you know, it, it really helps understanding the sad that counteracts it. And it really helps us appreciate, you know, all of the good parts of the holidays and spending time with the important people in our lives. The importance of the holidays, was that also amplified by the fact that you went to a Catholic school? Yeah, you know, that was something that definitely changed a perspective. Um, you know, I was raised religiously, and then I went to a Catholic middle school and a Catholic high school. And so, you know, we would always do a lot of the traditional um, Catholic trappings of the holidays. You know, we would go to evening mass and you know it definitely kind of forced the holiday to be focused on religion versus you know something secular what you know the actual purpose of what christmas did you know as a counteract to you know the pagan winter solstice um all right, but um, moving on from that, like you, you went to a Catholic high school. How did you experience that as a, as a gay kid? Yeah, so I came out in high school, and it was a very interesting experience. And um, I know that 
you know, for a lot of people in religious settings that, you know, being your authentic self and coming out is a lot harder and it's understandable why, you know, people have to remain in the closet when going into these types of, you know, environments because it's, you know, in Catholic teachings, you know, homosexuality is something that is frowned upon that is believed to be sinful. And, you know, I'm glad that we have a new Pope that obviously is more progressive. Um, but it wasn't like that at the time because the new Pope, you know, ascended to that title after I was going through high school. But I came out sophomore year and, you know, I was bullied a lot before then, you know, in middle school, my freshman year in high school. And, you know, a lot of it was because I hadn't come out. That's what I've come to terms with. And it's because, you know, I was so afraid because I was bullied for, you know, being clocked as gay. It's like everyone knew I was gay, but I wasn't ready to accept that yet because there was the negative connotation of being gay and being bullied in middle school and the beginning of high school. But then I was given a lot of strength by people within the queer community at the time because, you know, I knew I was gay from a pretty early age. I'd say when I was, um, let's see, probably around 10, I'd say. Yeah. It it was as soon as, as soon as I went into, um, middle school, you know, around that, around that time, like as soon as I went into middle school, it was like a sexual awakening. I don't know why it was different, but it was for me. And, um, no, I, I was given a lot of strength because I was really exploring that. I had a lot of time before I came out to, you know, make good connections with the other openly gay people at my high school. They weren't in my class. There was no one else who was openly gay in my class, but, there were older students who had come out. And so they really helped me, you know, accept my identity and, you know, really coaxed me into coming out. And, you know, as soon as I came out sophomore year, it's like everything had changed. And because I had, you know, proudly defined who I was, I soon wasn't bullied anymore. Like sophomore through the end of senior year, it's like I had made more friends. It's like I became like, you know, the gay friend, you know, of the class. And so everybody wanted to be my friend because I was like some type of unicorn. So it was a... Comp- you, you became the gay breast friend trope. I did. Yeah, I know. Right. Yeah. And so yeah, how, that's how, what happened. Did you feel like that? I, I, I bet you felt that as a ex- positive experience because at least you had friends and weren't bullied anymore. That's true. You know, it's like everybody in my life who had supported me, you know, they continued to support me, my family, my friends, you know, and that wasn't something I was worried about because I knew they would. But yeah, it was, it wasn't what I was expecting, you know, going into a Catholic high school. It's like the administration, it was more of like, you know, don't ask, don't tell, but they didn't treat me any differently. But the students were so much more positive and I really wasn't expecting that. Do you have an idea where the gay best friend trope comes from? Um, yeah, definitely, you know, I look to romantic comedies, you know, like 
the heyday of romantic comedies always had a gay best friend. So we see that, you know, and like we see queer coded characters in the eighties when, you know, the, the coming of age romantic comedy took force from John Hughes. And then, you know, we, we see queer coded characters and other types of romantic comedies, you know, the sissy type of character. And then, you know, when we move into more progressive representation and more explicit representation in the nineties, you know, we see romantic comedies really employ a gay best friend. And so we've seen that trope, like, you know, subverted and also satirized. Um, and I, I really think it's because of the romantic comedy and just how that's influenced pop culture and the way people view gay people when watching those films. And it's like, yeah, I need a gay best friend to help me through my troubles in life, my romantic troubles, you know? Right. So I think that's that's where it was born. I, I read one paper on it uh, by, by someone called Sugard, who um, claims that people use the gay best friend trope to normalize misogyny, because in the sense that, okay, there's this queer character who says a lot of misogynistic things in in TV, in cinema, in whatever, and then justify it because, oh, I can say that because I'm gay, I, I'm, not su- I'm supposed to not like women. Mm. Um, which made me feel fair, even more conflicted about the trope than I already was. And then there's the capitalist aspect of it. Um, like, um, okay, the gay best friend always appears when it comes to dealing with makeovers or dealing with retail therapy. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm not entirely sure um, if there if uh, if there is a way to feel good about this. I mean, obviously it, it's present uh, uh, representation, which is worth something in and of itself. But still, it felt like th- there is something that could have been so good and then got deliberately ruined in so many ways. Yeah, you know that's the thing with the gay best friend trip. You know, I have issues with it because. You know, it doesn't create a character that can really be identified with because they don't really have their own narrative. You know, they're more of a a plot device than they are a character. And so, you know, it, it does push the needle forward when it came to acceptance, and that was a lot of the purpose of these roles. But, you know, it's very superficial representation, and it usually represents only one type of identity, which is the white cis gay man that's you know what we see in most of those early romantic comedies is it's a white cis very flamboyant specific type of identity within the queer community and you know it it doesn't really help the queer community as a whole for representation um and you know we still see that today when we're looking at the representation that we see in mainstream films it's completely different than what we see in independent films that don't have the wider reach as mainstream films that are produced by big studios um but i really loved your interpretation you know looking at the capitalistic aspect of it you know because i think also besides that um having you know the gay best friend synonymous with um you know going to the mall you know going shopping doing the makeover sequences you know also it's to attract a queer dollar you know we think of you know 
how much does that representation actually service the queer community? And we have to look at, well, what was their reasoning for put it, putting a character like that in the film? You know, is it to, you know, help an underrepresented community that is treated with bigotry? Or, you know, can we use that to, you know, get a wide audience to support us and you know add to our dollar you know we talk about the pink dollar with corporations and we talk about that with pride in june and how you know companies will cater to the queer community for just that month and then we don't see that again and it's just to get that pink dollar and increase their revenue and all of that acceptance progressive tolerant tolerant um behavior is just to get money and it doesn't have anything to do with actually being progressive and trying to help yeah you know, the an, queer community an example that comes to mind um when it comes to like um contemporary media as well is uh mitch and cam from modern family like yes sure they're they're a cute gay couple and uh you know they're 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 great characters in and of themselves, but they're still white cis men who um, still adhere to a relative middle class uh, lifestyle in which they adopted a kid and still have like one person being the main breadwinner and another one staying at home to take care of their child, and it's a very traditional um, family composition. Uh, apart from the fact that it's two men. I completely agree with that. I have had a lot of issues with Modern Family because, (laughs) you know, we don't see their characters progress at all. They continue to portray stereotypes with those two characters that don't change throughout, you know, this long-running television series. And, like you said, they uphold binary gender roles, and it's very heteronormative. It's, you know, a specific type of identity. It's an outdated way of viewing queer people and it was such a popular show that that's how people viewed gay people you know it's the same way with Ellen DeGeneres you know like that is the representation of you know gaydom and being a a lesbian woman and you know it's we just see that there's specific identities that are you know tolerable to a mainstream society and you know, they enforce a heterosexual identity without progressing a, a queer one. Yeah, um, I think it's about time we get into track two of the day because um, I want to keep this, like, a uh, fun conversation. I, think I feel that we're both just starting to get angry towards mainstream media. <laughs> um, so let's let's get ourselves cheered up again a little bit. Here's Love and Troy Savon. I'm so tired. I'm so tired of the songs, tired of the songs, tired of the songs, tired of love. Just wanna go home, wanna go home, wanna go home. So tired of the songs, tired of the songs, tired of the songs, tired of love. Just wanna go home, wanna go home, wanna go home. Best to me, somebody. But everybody around me's falling in love to our song. I, I, oh, I, yeah, hate it. Taking the 
Great little pop tune. Um, I'm so tired. Uh, released as a single in 2019. Um, also part of Love's um, debut full-length album, How I'm Feeling. Released earlier this year, 2020. And of course, as people do in gossip media, as soon as this collaboration was released, uh, people started gossiping about whether or not these two gay artists who work together, whether or not they were a couple. Um, was that also the story you got, uh, Nick, or did you pick this for a different reason? Um, it wasn't my specific reason, but I did hear that. That's what always happens, you know, just know, because right? a queer artist collaborates with, you know, like, well, no, if a one man or one woman collaborates with one man or one woman respectively you know there's always that conversation and you know it's like we know troy savan is queer and we know love you know is you know identifying as straight and so you know just because they're collaborating you know it doesn't mean that they're in a relationship but i really love this song because you know, we do have a queer artist and another man who are collaborating and they're singing a love song. You know, we don't get a lot of these same sex. That's you know, definitely true. Love song duets. And it's it's one of the type of collaborations where it's like, I really respect that, you know, there's this collaboration in place where, you know, love is, you know, an ally and really you know, secure in his own masculinity and sexuality to not care about any of that bullshit, you know? Yeah, I mean, they did share an Instagram caption in which they said, like, me and my new BF released a new song, but, you know, that's obviously to be taken with a grain of salt. Um, uh, but from there, I really liked... Um, what I liked most about these two artists is their aesthetic... Like just their 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 the bright colors that comes with the way they present themselves and you know uh, really being some fun examples of um, two male assigned at birth people who are like uh, who are adding some much needed androgyny into pop music. Mm-hmm. How how do you how do you view that? Because I know that Harry Styles also was an option of review for this category, but. You know, in the end, um, decided to go with this one instead. Yeah, no. And I love Harry Styles, of course. You know, he's one of my other favorite queer artists. But, you know, I think androgyny is something that is a little bit in a gray area for me. Just because when we look at the capitalistic aspect of androgyny and the popularity of it you know we see it in fashion and we see it when you know um, companies are having their own fashion campaigns they really focus on androgyny aesthetics 
And so we're seeing that more in music as well. And we have to think, okay, so, you know, we're, we're playing off of a genderqueer type of identity when looking at, you know, fashion and, you know, people who rep musicians who represent themselves, other celebrities who represent themselves. And we have to think, are they appropriating, you know, an identity for, you know, choosing to look more androgynous? And it's like, if that's how they identify themselves, if they identify themselves as non-binary, as genderqueer, you know, then of course. But if they are, you know, cis, either queer or um, non-queer, then we have to think, is this something that really should be tolerated? Because to me, it feels somewhat like appropriation. It's something to gain more appeal and money, in my opinion. Okay, that actually makes a lot of sense. But on the other hand, I also feel like it's, I mean, in, in a very optimistic uh, point of view, it could contribute to, you know, addressing stuff like toxic masculinity. Well, yeah, you know, we recently saw where Harry Styles, you know, he was on the cover of Vogue and he was wearing that gorgeous dress and there was immediate backlash from the alt-right conservative media here in the United States. You know, we have Ben Shapiro and Candace Owens who are attacking him because they believe that he is contributing to the downfall of American masculinity. Good. I know, right? I'm like, ooh, I love to see them outraged because, you know, it just, it really means that we're moving forward and, you know, a type of progressive view on identity and gender identity. And I mean, why are they even upset that he's contributing to the downfall of American masculinity? Just let this British person do whatever. Exactly. You know, that was the the main, you know, follow-up to them is like, why does this impact your life at all? You know, it's just outrage for the sake of outrage because it appeals to their base and people are still uncomfortable with, you know, binary gender roles and gender, um, gender, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Sorry. Gender fluidity. Um, expression. Right, gender expression, yeah. To, you know, be the opposite of what they're used to you know it does not work with their narrow worldview um i mean there have been artists um you know walking the line of androgyny oh yeah you know david bowie is a very prominent example and it's like prince as well do they not remember yeah prince or david bowie at all you know (laughs) yeah uh, but, you know, from there, it's like, um, I especially, especially want to draw attention to, like, non-white artists who've been who've been doing the same thing. Like, Moses Sumney uh, and Jaden Smith, who's been doing this for years. And, I mean, that's, there is only bla- backlash now because a white person was in the cover of Vogue. Uh, because if there was a non-white artist who's been doing this for years, no one, no one cared. That's true. You know, Harry Styles is a brand name. He's a global sensation. It's easier to attack him because they know that he has the influence to be able to appeal to a wide 
demographic and community of people. And so they're threatened by that because they, you know, they're afraid of his influence. And I think it also has to do that he is explicit about his queerness. And so it matches the type of fashion that he puts on. It's more authentic, his fashion, than just someone who's non-queer and um, who is cis who decides to use androgyny as, you know, fashion. Um, but yeah, it's, it's because he's so prominent and they would not even care about, you know, a non-prominent, non-white uh, performer doing this because they don't believe that their reach is wide enough. How do you experience gender yourself? So um, I go by he, him pronouns, but I also do accept being referred to as they, them, because I am against gender as a construct. Um, I I believe that I can identify both ways, and I try to keep a lot of my fashion to be very gender fluid, um, gender free as well. And um, one of my favorite shopping places, not to not to product place anything, but it's called the Fluid Project. And so I, you know, enjoy shopping there. And I think that when we deconstruct gender, which we've been doing for so long, but still hasn't been as um, successful as we'd hope, but, you know, when we can really deconstruct gender, then we can really live a better life. And, you know, it, it's a gray area because we see people who you know, are queer who, you know, they identify with their gender. You know, when we think of trans people, it's like, we don't want to deconstruct their gender because that is what's important to them because they've had to go through this entire process of, you know, living their authentic life, especially as hard as it is for a trans individual. I I think it, it goes back to, I'm trying to get back to, um, my main point about expressing my gender, but, you know, when we can deconstruct gender and I'm fully in support of that, you know, we're able to really live more of an authentic life where we're not pressured by a mainstream society and upholding a gender binary, but, you know, it's nuanced, like I was saying and talking about trans identity, because we don't want to deconstruct it for them because that is something that is integral to their identity. Um, But I think it can work both ways. You know, we can have a universal acceptance of a fluidity in our gender identity and not being, having to uphold a gender binary, but still being able to accept and respect that for people who it is important for them. As long as, you know, they're not against the deconstruction of gender for other people. You know, it has to work both ways, in my opinion. Right. At some point um, earlier, you mentioned that you um, you knew you were gay around 10. Was that including your perception of gender the way it is now? No, that has completely changed. I, um, you know, when I was younger, I, before I had come out, before I knew I was gay, I definitely identified more with women. And I think it's I I just loved women so much. I respected them. I wanted to be more like them because I, I had better experiences with women than men. And I said that I'd rather be more like that than a man, you know, because of 
how men are in this world. That makes absolute sense. And so, you know, I, I always identified myself as a man, though, and as a gay man. But the more that I've understood gender, the more that I've learned because people have been more vocal about it and it's finally gaining more traction, you know, in the recent decade that, you know, I really do see myself as looking back on that experience as a younger person and realizing that that is a part of my identity. You know, that's it influenced, you know, how I presented myself, the way I acted and that had nothing to do with being gay, but about uh, a queer identity with my perception of gender and how I viewed my own gender. I know that there were some other stuff that we still want to talk about, but, you know, time's flying by. We need to move on. Um, track number three for today. A absolute club classic. Yeah, that's just dive right in. My mama told me when I was young, we're all on superstars. She rolled my hair, put my lipstick on, in a glass of her boudoir. There's nothing wrong with loving who you are, she said, cause he made you perfect, babe. So hold your head up, girl, and you'll go far. Born This Way, Lady Gaga, an absolute club classic of the eponymous album released 2011. I feel like the track is much older because this track has been everywhere for so long. I feel like it, it, it's just been, it's, it's been around, it's been unavoidable. I feel like it's much older than only 2011. Oh gosh, I know. Um, <laughs> yeah, maybe it's just because we're getting old. Well, I think it's just um, been overplayed 
overplayed to death. We see that with so many songs, and you know, we hear it for so long that it feels like it's been a part of our lives, so it feels really old to us. Yet here we go playing it again. Yeah, I um, know. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, this is this is this is on you. You 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 pick the tracks for the show, um, but why why did you decide to play it if it's as overplayed as you say it is? Yeah. So um, this was about my favorite concert experience and one that was really formative for me. So um, you know, around the time that I was really coming to accept and love my queer identity was around the time that Lady Gaga became a huge success in 2008-2009 and um, you know that she was very pro queer community that um, she's been one of the biggest allies of the 21st century for the queer community and um, I remember that I just love the hell out of her because she was popular and she was representing the community as such a strong ally and so I knew I had to go to her concert because I hadn't gone to a lot of concerts early on in my life and that was one of the first concert experiences I had and it was because I just loved and respected her so much I loved her music I still love her and I still love her music um Born This Way was one of the songs played during that concert. And, you know, I think it was just such a, you know, community bringing together moment listening to that song because there were so many queer people in that audience. And it just reminded me how big this community is, how strong it is together, how we can come together and celebrate. And that is what was, that's what was taken away from me. It was such a positive experience for my identity and for my own, you know, birth, um, you know, awakening of music and how that shaped my identity. She was really one of the first for me. All right. And then it, it re- that feeling, that sense of community hit you during Born This Way, which is why I picked this track. Like you could have just picked any other like album, obscure album track i don't know so you but but just because you got that feeling there this song is why you picked it correct yes it's definitely right. not my yeah. favorite but yeah <laughs> <laughs> all right yeah no that's fair um i've actually been listening to her latest album more often than i expected i would um but um but but all that aside um Let's see what 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 kind of venue was it like? Where was it? Take us take us with you. So it was at the Schottenstein Center in Columbus, Ohio, which is one of the biggest, probably the biggest concert venues in Columbus. It's um, a part of Ohio State University's um, campus, and so it's huge. It was a huge arena. So we're talking you know, thousands of people in, you know, this concert. And I was lucky because I got to be, you know, in the standing area in front of the stage. And so that's really where that community feeling was because I was right there with everyone. We were all together. And I definitely am nostalgic for it now that we're um, unable to attend concerts and be surrounded with people because of COVID, of course. 
But, um, you know, just being surrounded by so many people in close proximity, dancing together, being so close to her, listening to her sing. And, you know, she's a very perform performative performer. <laughs> um, <laughs> silly, I know. Um, but, uh-huh. you know, that's, it just, you know, it wraps you in, you know, that specific environment. And then you have this whole panoramic view of, all these other fans cheering, filling up these stadium stands. And you're, you're... Yeah, that's the best part of concerts, isn't it? Like, sure, the music is great, especially like when it's one of your favorite artists. But if COVID has taught us one thing, it's that we also just kind of enjoy being part of a sweaty mess of people. Exactly. Exactly. So, but, you know, it's it's also with, with Lady Gaga in particular. Like, it's it's an artist that kind of embodies um like cis white gay men as as an artist i feel like like if there's one artist that's big in like in in the community it's her um so from there i feel like it's 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 fun how people can tie their identity so much to one specific artist yeah, that. I mean, it's not like it hasn't happened before, but it's like f- interesting to see. Yeah, no, I completely agree, and we see in specific parts of the queer community that, you know, if you don't like a certain artist, then you know, how do you belong in this community? You know, especially with Lady Gaga and cis white gay men, it's like if you don't lady if you don't like Lady Gaga, then are you even gay? You know, like can you even belong to this, you know, specific identity that's very herd mentality and you know, exclusive. Um so yeah, you know, it's very interesting that we see, especially in the queer community, that, you know, liking an audience liking an artist and um supporting that artist, standing them, you know, it's like that is it has to be a part of your queer identity. I'm not entirely sure if I agree. Like Lady Gaga is just one example of where it can happen. But I feel like there are much more places in which it happened. Like this isn't just queer people, but also I think you're fine when you're when you don't specifically like Lady Gaga. Like I've expressed multiple times, I'm not really fond of Pride events, but I feel like I'm doing fine and I still belong. Or is that just me? No, you know, I think that's, you know, it's such a negative that we have to tie our identity that, you know, that there's this herd mentality in certain communities, you know, especially in the queer community, you know, because there isn't one way to identify yourself. You know, that's, it's so reductive and you know it's so basic in a way that we feel like we need to identify a specific way you know it's like we can enjoy different artists we can dislike certain artists that you know the community that we identify with you know either loves or hates but you know that doesn't change who we are and i think it's important for people to understand that and i think that you know i think there's a general consensus they do but you know, we still can receive a lot of backlash if we don't like a certain artist. Like, you know, for me, and, um, you know, I'm not a huge fan of both Cher and Madonna. And, you know, I've listened to so much of them, but it's like, how can you be, you know, a white cis gay if you don't like Madonna or Cher, you know? (laughs) 
Yeah, I was just about to ask. I feel like you're talking from personal experience when you say you feel some kind of pressure from that herd mentality. Yeah, and you know, it's nothing that was ever directed to me, but you see that, you know, you just see it constantly, you know, when you're a part of a specific community and that's what the the the, the discourse is about. You know, you're like, "Huh, is there something wrong because I don't feel the same way as all of you?" <laughs> right. Um but You know, you did pick Lady Gaga as one of the artists to play the night. So there is at least some part of uh, of you that that still somewhat, um, I guess, resonates with the, with you know just liking her as an artist. Oh, I do. You know, it's like I used her as an example, but I, you know, like I said, I loved her as soon as she hit the scene. You know, before she became, you know, this right, huge. Yeah icon you know in the in the before this song bird is way was even released probably yeah you know as soon as just dance came out like as soon as just dance and poker face came out you know i was you know reading into them i was listening to them nonstop. like those were the songs you know of that time and you know of course they're not relevant today anymore but poker face is still one of my favorite lady gaga songs and it's because that was when i was first noticing her and you know everybody loved her it wasn't just the gay community it's like everybody that i knew loved her sure yeah so what side of her do you prefer like we've we've played born this way now but i bet you um you, you strike me as the type of person who actually likes her tony bennett album the best Actually, no, I haven't heard that. That's so funny that you um, that you'd say that. I take that as a compliment because I think that's a really, you know, underappreciated album. But I wouldn't know because I haven't heard it, and um, that's that's really that's really something. Um, I take that as a compliment, though. <laughs> right, well, I mean, that's that's the thing, right? You you strike me as someone who is like a proper fan, and then of course you're gonna like the un, the the most underplayed album the most. Um, well, for me, my my favorite album is um, gosh, let me. No, it would have to be Born This Way. You know, I was a huge fan of you know Mary the Night, Edge of Glory, Judas. Um, you know, I I really like the more rock aesthetic. For her right all right yeah fair all right but you know from there like to, to get to get back to the um the stereotyping a little bit like i feel like there is a way um i i I'm, i read some papers about this and god damn it i want to reference them <laughs> um so what what i what i what i read was this this book by jody taylor um coincidentally also from 2011 about um the role music plays uh when it comes to figuring out your your um your sexuality and gender identity uh because um i mean that's just basically the grounds upon which this, this podcast is built like the parallels between figuring out the complexity of gender and sexuality in the same way you need to just kind of figure out the complexity of you know what kind of music do i like and you know the parallels there of yeah sure you can like country and pop uh in the same way you can like people on all ends of the gender spectrum 
uh, or or not at all and just kind of be indifferent to it all. Like that's just I found really interesting, and I'm 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 gonna dive into that book way more. So expect some future references to 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 that work as well. But do you have any any thought in those parallels? Um, yeah, no, I, I totally see that. You know, I think that's something that we see with, you know, all types of identity, not even when in regards to sexuality and gender identity, you know, I think we see that, you know, that there's a specific like political ideology too, where um, people will choose music based off of what, who they're politically affiliated with, what ideology, you know, we see that with, um, how music is influenced by a lot of other aspects of pop culture. Um, So I think it's something where it's more universal, where it's like, once we feel like we've established ourselves, we seek out music that confirms our, our identity in whichever facet we choose to um, dominate, which facet of our personality and identity that is the more dominant of how we identify ourselves. And so we seek out music that goes along with that dominant part of the identity and personality. Yeah. Um, well put. Um, before, before we, uh, move on to the last track, um, the last track of the day is going to be visions of Gideon by Sylvian Stevens. Um, one of my favorite artists. If you haven't checked out his album *The Ascension*, go do that now. That's a that's a free little top tip I'm giving you there. Um, but you know, this is obviously a song from the movie *Call Me by Your Name*, um, and um, it's a movie with great soundtrack altogether, and also a great aesthetic. And and now I'm just specifically referring to the scene in which the main character is wearing a Talking Heads T-shirt. Um, uh, but yeah, um, so before we, before we play that one, um, why don't you shine a little bit of a light as to why you picked this specific song? I mean, the obvious explanation would be we needed at least one song that would have featured in a movie or a film major after all, but I don't want to put any words in your mouth. Yeah, no, um, thank you. I cannot say enough about Call Me By Your Name, so... Um, I know that it's been received differently now um, since it's been a few years and a lot of um, cishet girls have kind of claimed the movie for themselves and there's been a lot of discussions about the nature of the relationship and the age difference. Um, But, you know, when that movie came out, it absolutely changed me. It's what a good film does to a person. I remember I went into a very deep depression after watching that film. And it had happened recently when, um, I left one of my, one of my jobs and I was really unsure about my future and what I wanted to do. And that movie really helped me figure it out. But before then it affected me, you know, in a very, dark way on two different levels but you know i i bought the album because i loved how curated it was and you know every classical musical piece was just perfectly chosen i've written an essay on all of the different musical aspects of it and the purpose and i definitely want to share it with you 
because I think that you would really yeah, appreciate it. Yeah, let's read it. it. Yeah, I'll definitely send it your way. But um, yeah, I, I think Visions of Gideon really stood out to me because first of all, it's a it's a haunting track. Whenever I hear it, I automatically start to tear up and cry. And a lot of it is because it's synonymous with the final scene of the film. And that's when the song plays and it's over the credits where we see Timothée Chalamet um, doing his famous crying in front of a fireplace scene. And at the time, it just devastated me. And I would listen to that song when I wanted to cry. And every time, I would. That's powerful. So, um, do you... I'm probably asking something very ignorant here, but do you have preferences when it comes to movie soundtracks? Like, do you, for example, prefer pop music, uh, pop music, over like Hans Zimmer type of compositions or other classical pieces? Well, yeah, for me, it really depends on, you know, the movie specifically. If a movie if, makes sense, if, if a movie affects me deeply, and I love the music how it's curated. You know, because there's a lot of directors who believe that music is a very important part of the film. You know, just thinking of Quentin Tarantino, going back to Jackie Brown, you know, it's like all of the music in his films are specifically chosen. But yeah, you know, I compare an artist like Sufjan Stevens, who's, you know, definitely more indie than an artist like, um, well, a producer slash artist like Jack Antonoff, who curated the soundtrack for Love, Simon, which is a movie I take a lot of issue with, but I downloaded the soundtrack because the movie also affected me deeply when it came out. And, um, you know, I've reevaluated it after it came out a couple of years ago. But, um, you know, it also came out around the same time as Call Me By Your Name, so that was a double whammy. But, you know, they're two completely different artists, you know. Sufjan Stevens and Jackie Antonoff's band, which is called... Oh, gosh. Bleachers. Bleachers. Thank you. Thank you so much. I was going to say the 1975, and I'm like, no, that's a different band altogether. <laughs> but yeah, you know, that's more like pop, you know? Yeah, thank you for coming on. Um, so with that, this has been Queer Sounds. If you like this podcast, tell a friend, come hang out on our socials at queersoundspot.com on Twitter, Instagram, and Tumblr. Um and uh yeah check out our patreon patreon.com slash queer sounds um you you know the drill um and yeah with that i want to thank nick for coming on and i want to thank you listener for listening again this is visions of gideon by sufjan stevens Thank you.
Thank you. 